I remember when I was 16 and I really upset you that day and you were, you were so good to me. I did not deserve that. I was horrible. I was bratty. I was inappropriate. I was absolutely appalling. And you were patient with me. You were good to me. You treated me better than I deserved. That's, that's what I want. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I am speaking to Dr. Justin Coulson. Justin is one of Australia's leading parenting experts. He is a highly sought-after international keynote speaker, author, facilitator and podcast host who strives to boost well-being and improve relationships for parents, teachers, students and employees. However, this has not always been the case. Justin had a successful radio career and was travelling along very nicely professionally, yet As Justin admits, he was not the father or husband that he wanted to be. Justin decided that something had to give and gave up radio to return to school in his late 20s where he earned his psychology degree from the University of Queensland and his PhD in psychology from the University of Wollongong. His expertise is not only on paper but in practice too as he is the father of six daughters. Justin has written multiple peer-reviewed journal articles and scholarly book chapters, as well as several books and e-books about parenting, including 21 Days to a Happier Family, 9 Ways to a Resilient Child, and 10 Things Every Parent Needs to Know. He has also written What Your Child Needs from You, Creating a Connected Child and Relationship Rules, and has a new release out, Misconnection, Why Your Teenage Daughter Hates You, Expects the World, and Needs to Talk. Justin created Happy Families in 2005 to help others transform their relationships and their lives for the better. He also has a podcast with the same name that I highly recommend. Justin has worked with the Commonwealth Bank, American Express, the Office of the Children's eSafety Commissioner, the Federal Government's Department of Social Services, Life Education and hundreds of schools. Justin is an Honorary Fellow at the Centre for Positive Psychology in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. He is a consultant to the Federal Government's Office of the Children's E-Safety Commissioner and has acted and continues to act in an advisory capacity to well-known organisations including Beyond Blue, the Raising Children Network, Life Education, Intel Security and the Alana and Madeline Foundation. In addition, Justin is consistently sought after by the media for his expertise. He writes a weekly advice column for Sydney's Daily Telegraph, appears regularly on the project, the Today Show, Studio 10, Mornings and several radio stations around the nation. He has a brilliant TEDx talk and is also the parenting expert at kidspot.com.au, Australia's number one parenting website. We can now add an episode of Moments of Clarity to the list. I was extremely touched by my conversation with Justin. Although we only had a short time together, I felt we were able to explore a lot. Justin was vulnerable, authentic and honest, which allowed his expertise and wisdom to come out in droves. Throughout the conversation and reflecting afterwards, I couldn't help but feel a need to change, to be better. I have so many amazing, loving, giving people in my life and I just wanted to hug them. As a teacher, I felt that things have to change in our classrooms around the country. We need to be more caring and compassionate. The world is full of buzzwords, theories and ideas, but at the end of the day, give people a chance, show compassion and love unconditional love. We are in a constant state of fear, which we project as being busy, goal-oriented or driven. But what are we missing along the way? What gold is being left behind on this frantic search for something better? I often think about the internal and the external, what is within us and what is outside of us. 
We always talk about building towards being a more complete person. Yes, we must constantly reflect and try to be better, but instead of this overstimulated race to the bottom, maybe we can strip back the facade a little and let the empathy and tenderness within take over. Not only towards others we love, but ourselves too. And not only to people we know, but to everyone. I was talking to a couple of friends about the state of our world and wondering if there is hope that humans can change. I looked up at the stars and said it is possible. It is within us. All we need to do is cry at the same time. Imagine that. Every moment of compassion, tenderness, grace and wonderment that we feel every blue moon and usually alone. Imagine if we could somehow use that power to bring ourselves from the depths of despair, not only as individuals, but as a society. Anyway, it is funny how a chat about parenting and education can bring this on, but that is what it did. I have talked for way too long, so now I bring you Dr. Justin Coulson. Justin, welcome to Moments of Clarity. It's really nice to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me. I am a recent parent, and I actually came across you on that journey as of being a recent parent um, and have found a lot of what you have to say really helpful because as a teacher and seeing how the the diversity and range of parenting styles that you get to see as a teacher and, and the outcomes that occurs with students, I get to see. And now I get to actually practice some of the things I've learned across my journey with my daughter, who's four months now. So me and my partner, Lauren, uh, where we're learning every day and, and we've really taken a lot out of what you have to to teach. So I'm really glad that you're able to join me today. I uh, I don't know how I can really be of benefit to parents, but what I know is that I've learned so much being a parent myself. And I just love to be able to share with parents. I kind of feel like it's what I'm on the earth to do. So I, I'm so excited for you that, that you've just become a parent. That's that's super. Um, when I don't know if if this has been the case for you, Matt, but did, did you just find that you suddenly realised that all those answers that you thought you had because you're a school teacher, for example, and you're used to dealing with other people's kids all the time, like you're like, yeah, I know how to do this, and now you're dealing with it yourself and you're like, I don't know if I have any idea what I'm doing. Yeah, it is really interesting. Uh, do you know... I thought that I would have no idea coming into it. I actually had all these expectations from the people I've talked to and seen that talk about parenting like it is the, it's great, but it is the hardest job on earth, but not only hardest, but it, it oftentimes people project constant stress and, and um, almost on the verge of a meltdown while it is the, the, the greatest achievement and their most favorite thing. They're on the verge of something. And I actually had that in the back of my mind going into this, but I've taken to it, even though she's only four months and my partner does a great job and allows me to, you know, go in there and, and be the fun person and the person that gets to, you know, do all those great things while she's up all night. But um, I've taken to it, but I do find that I have no idea how she's going to react and no idea how the the impact that I'm going to have and and how that's going to play out. So, but what you have mentioned in your speeches and your podcasts and some of your books is being a proactive parent rather than a reactive parent, and that's something I've really taken away. Do you find maybe that that is the key message that you'd like to to put across in your, I guess, field? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things that you've touched on there that are worth exploring and elaborating on a little bit. The first one is that intention is everything. 
Uh, and, and you're dealing with a four-month-old. As you know, they grow up and they become really different the older they get uh, and increasingly challenging as well. Um, four months, you're just tired, right? There's just there's stinky nappies and there's a baby that needs feeding and uh, they're, they're kind of the only two reasons that they cry. They're either tired or three reasons, sorry. They're either tired, they stink, or... <laughs> Or they, they need food. But as they get older, they, they start to push buttons. So I reckon increasingly the longer I'm a parent myself and the more I think about parenting, the more convinced I am that parenting is just about a couple of things. First off, it's about nurturance, warmth, love, unconditional love. As soon as we say, uh, if you do that, then I'll do this, we're starting to move from unconditionality to conditionality. And that's that's bad for kids. Uh, they, they need warmth, they need support, they need nurture. Second thing that they need is uh, they need rules and limits, but they need those rules and limits to be set the right way. They don't need us to be the authority figure, like maybe a classroom teacher uh, often finds themselves being, where they say, guys, these are the rules, do the right thing, full stop, end of story. Otherwise, detention, you're writing out lines. Uh, not that teachers make kids do that anymore surely um, but, but the third thing that they need is autonomy and the more I watch parents the more I see parents struggle with this I think this is the number one lesson for a parent and, and, and at four months it's not such a big deal but once they get to two and anything north of two this is when autonomy really kicks in the ability to let them live their own life well <laughs> And I know you don't just say, well, to the two-year-old, sure, you can have ice cream for breakfast if that's what you want, but rather you let them discover life, you let them explore life. Uh, parents don't do a really good job of that, especially in the 2020s. We've become so, uh, you talked about being proactive versus reactive. We've become overly proactive and overly prescribed. Uh, the kids are having their, their language lessons or their maths tutoring or their sport or their whatever's going on. By the time they're four or five years of age, we've got them enrolled in everything. They're oversubscribed in so many activities because we want to give them a head start. We want them to not fall behind. We put all this educational pressure on kids so that they don't make the same mistakes we made. And we forget that kids need a childhood. We forget that childhood's meant to be about fun and play. Uh, in fact, as parents, we become so stressed that we forget how to have fun and play with our kids. So I guess I'm kind of increasingly on a mission to help parents to, to love their kids more, to work out how to get autonomy right with their kids and to loosen up a bit. I think we've kind of, in the 19, we, we romanticised the 1950s, Matt. Oh, in the 50s you could go out and you just played in the street until the lights came on and then you went home and had dinner and it was leave it to beaver and um, all that sort of stuff. And then the pendulum began to swing uh, until we've gotten to this point now where we're so extreme in our parenting. I, I like parenting feels like it's a ninja warrior episode every day. feels like we're climbing Mount Everest on a day. And that goes back to that comment from your friends or the people that you watch, parents are stressed. And I just don't, I don't think we need to be that stressed, especially about raising kids. Just love them, give them opportunities and give them some freedom. They'll work it out and they'll live great lives. Yeah, there's a few things to touch on there. Freedom to live their own lives and that idea of being overly stressed, but why should they be? I find that in life too. I find that there was 
and and let's use COVID as an example, especially being from Melbourne, we had a lockdown that went for quite a while. And what I noticed... 104, is that right? 104 days. No, we weren't counting here, no. (laughs) I think it was 104, and um, at least the second time around. And the thing I found most, I guess, jarring was the desperation for people to get out of work and wish that the you know, workplace would catch on fire or there'd be a snow day, you know, whatever it is that people are wishing for. And then COVID hits and then it was almost let's get some sense of normalcy, let's get something. And it was, I guess it's a heightened sense of anxiety. We've we've realised that people want a sense of control in their lives and, and they just don't have that. And the lockdown showed me that people not only in raising children, but in maybe lots of areas of life. And I'm one of these people. I'm not from this, from a higher place at all. I'm one of these people, but people in general in modern Western society seem to try to control so much that if one little day, you know, is, is out of place, it, it can really derail people. And COVID has done that. And maybe, you know, raising a child where you cannot control this individual all the time can lead to that stress. Would you say there's a it's just about parenting or it's a lifestyle societal problem or or concern? Yeah, so psychological researchers have discovered this thing called the illusion of control. We think that we've got a lot more control over our lives than we really do. Uh we really believe that and when we don't have that sense of control, we experience stress, we experience burnout, we experience psychopathology like anxiety and depression. I mean it can really derail us. Uh and that's Part of the reason that our, our our statistics that are emerging already are demonstrating pretty clearly that COVID, particularly in the areas that have been worst hit with lockdowns, um, COVID has had a really significant impact on mental health because illusions of control have been shattered. And as people have sought control, uh, they've sometimes made choices that aren't always safe, healthy or wise. If we spin that into parenting, I think there's another factor at play as well. In fact, there's probably a number, but the central one that I'm going to focus on is parental investment. What research has shown us is that over the decades, uh, parents are investing more and more and more into fewer and fewer children. That is, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, it's still, I mean, it wasn't that unusual, even into the 1970s, for parents to have four and five and six and even seven or eight or nine children. But declining birth rates mean that the average Australian family right now, I think, is sitting on 1.83. I don't think that we're at replacement level. We need, I think it's 2.1 or 2.3 to be at replacement level. And we're sitting at about 1.8 based on the last stats that I saw. Two things happen here. Number one, we can control one child or two children far easier than we can control four or six. Like I'm a dad to six kids. I've given up trying to control them. There's just too much going on. It's too hard. And I'd rather just let them live their lives. It's easier. But life feels better for them and for me when I'm not laissez-faire. I'm mindful of the way that I'm engaged in my children's lives. I don't just sit back and go, yeah, whatever. I don't have to do anything at all about it. In fact, there's a term that I came across recently that I really like. It's masterly inactivity. Masterly inactivity means... I'm not sitting back and doing nothing because I'm lazy or because I don't know what to do. I'm not being inactive accidentally or by default. Instead, I'm choosing masterful inactivity by saying, I reckon my kids can figure this out. I'm bigger, I'm smarter, I'm wiser, I'm able to be helpful where I need to be, but I'm not going to step in until they ask for help. And even then, I'm going to use my wisdom 
to determine whether or not I am going to step in or say to them, you're almost there, you've got this, you can do it. I think that there's something really powerful about that. And parents at the moment are not using any kind of masterful inactivity as a general rule. They're seeing their children might encounter some sort of a challenge and they're diving in before the challenge even arrives. Or as a school teacher, I'm sure you get the, the letters from parents, the emails, the phone calls saying, um, my, my son, my daughter forgot this, had this problem, had this issue. Will you please give them an A anyway? Will you please forgive this? Will you please help them with that? So parents, I, I mean, the, the, the popular term for this is helicopter parenting or snowplayer parenting. Uh, there's that going on. So we've got parental investment because there's fewer kids. Parents are investing more and more and more. And because there is more pressure in an increasingly individualistic society where we pretend that we're in a meritocracy and we're not, we're in, we're in something that vaguely resembles what a meritocracy could be if we had a much more equal system. Uh, but we're in this setup where basically... Uh, some parents are looking at it as this is a dog-eat-dog world, kiddo. I mean, average house prices in Sydney and Melbourne now, are, oh, sorry, median house prices are over a million bucks. You're going to leave uni in 18 years from now because, you know, you've got a four-month-old. Four so in 18 years, your your baby is go it's going to be 2040-ish and your baby's going to be leaving high school and by then house prices are going to be, median house price in Melbourne and Sydney is going to be like, I don't know, two and a half million bucks and the median income is going to be... Uh, let's say 120 grand, and that's just unaffordable for you to live, which means that we've got to get you into the best schools and we've got to get you into the best university and you've got to get a really strong profession. You've got to specialise early and get ahead of the pack and be more successful, which means beating everybody else. That's what success means, right? You've got to be better than someone else. Now, anyone that I talk to says, no, that's not success. But as a society, that's how we treat it. It's like as individually we all chafe at that definition of success, but as a society we still say, but everyone else is doing it, so I've got to do that anyway. That's not success, but the only way I'm going to get ahead is to make sure, oh, my kids are going to get ahead, is to make sure that they become a doctor. No, if you want a doctor in the family, you become a doctor. Don't force that on your kids. Anyway, I sorry, I'm, I'm starting to rant. Let me go back. So we've got this situation where uh, parents are trying to control outcomes because they want the best for their kids and they're investing more heavily in their kids than ever before. That's the situation in which we find ourselves. And it's uh, it's toxic and at times it even borders on abusive. I love a good rant. That was fantastic because I, there are many things that I want to jump into there. The first one is education. You said before, you know, you wouldn't get your, your students to write outlines as a teacher or, you know, the detention. But you, you did mention that, you know, it's there's a difference between how we might be with 20 students rather than our own one to six children, you know, whatever it might be. Why is there a difference? Should there be a difference? Uh, you know, I'm sure you've worked in schools and with teachers before. Do you, do you, do you sometimes wonder why we have this expectation that autonomy should be dropped or, sorry, should be encouraged in the home, but then once it gets to a school level, all these rules are... Oh, all of a sudden there and those kids that actually have a freedom at home sometimes get you know squashed at school because they're too loud or singing you know when they shouldn't be or whatever it might be how can we sort of balance that and is there is there some way that that should be balanced 
Okay, so first of all, children need to be considerate of others and recognise that there are appropriate limits. So it's not okay to be running around the classroom or singing or dancing on the table or anything like that. That's just basic socialisation and parents have that responsibility. Secondly, I don't see parents being too free range with their kids at home. I see parents primarily being pretty strict, having high expectations, putting a lot of pressure on the kids from increasingly young ages so that they can do well at school and not have any issues there. They're the, the, a couple of quick points points based on what you've just asked. Now, the broader question, and this is a really dicey thing for me to say, um, because I'm not an educator in, in a school context. I don't stand in front of the classroom and teach 28 kids a day, all day, every day, 300 days a year. That's not what I do for work. I talk to adults primarily, or I do a keynote to students to encourage them to be nice to each other. And that, that's the bulk of the contact that I have with students. But 80 to 90% of my work is in schools, whether I'm talking to students, talking to teachers, or talking to parents. Schools are my primary market. So it's it's very, very challenging for me to say this without offending somebody, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think that our education system's broken. In fact, I know a lot of educators that think our education system's broken. So maybe it's not as provocative as, <laughs> as, as I'm making it out to be. Uh, we really... I think that our society in so many ways has got things topsy-turvy and, and we're, we're particularly unkind to children. We're, we're, we're particularly, it's like we know so much about children's development and yet when it comes to education and this desire for success, that is got to come first at NAPLAN, got to come first in your HSC or your VCE or wherever, whatever state you're in, uh, in your year 12 exams, got to get into that competitive university degree. We just put all this pressure on our kids. The data is clear. Autonomy support at home makes a difference for children's well-being and motivation. Autonomy support in the classroom makes a difference for children's well-being and motivation. What happens, though, is, well, there's two things that are going on. Number one, a whole lot of teachers have been taught a whole lot of strategies that are not autonomy supportive because you've got to manage classroom behaviour. What a terrible phrase. Children don't need to be managed. Children need all sorts of things, but being managed is not one of them. And behaviour doesn't need to be managed. I just, I hate the phrase. Uh, the, the second thing is, so you've got a, you've got this context where there's a belief that children need to be managed and so we're, we're restricting autonomy, but there's also so much to get done. And what research tells us is that as pressure goes up, so too to controlling and punitive techniques, negative sanctions increase. People, whether they're in a classroom or in a home or in an office building for that matter, become more and more uh, disinclined to give autonomy and support autonomy in a context where pressure builds. In fact, something that I say all the time to teachers is when pressure goes up, the more pressure there is, the more likely it is that you'll revert to your most practiced habit. And our most practiced habits usually are punitive threats. <laughs> do this or you'll get that. Write these lines, I'll start yelling at you, sit down, be quiet, do as you're told. That's the most practiced habit. Uh, there, there are much, much, much better ways. Actually, let's do an experiment. It's a thought experiment. Um, it would be ideal if everyone had pen and paper. So just imagine, we're, we're going to pretend that we're doing it with real, um, re real implements, but we're going to use it our minds. Imagine that you're sitting in a, a workshop session with me and, and you're not a parent right now. You're a school teacher, although you could be a parent as well. It works in either context. And what I'm going to ask you to do is draw a picture of a house. Okay, so imagine you're in a room with a bunch of people. I've said, uh, can you draw a picture of a house for me? You pick up your pen and you start to uh, you start to draw. And while you're drawing, I'm talking about something to do with discipline or something to do with autonomy or something to do with 
raising kids or teaching kids or something like that. And then I say, all right, who's got their house finished? And, and can I ask you, Matt, have you finished your house in your mind? Not quite. I'm almost there. <laughs> what, what does your house look like? Describe it to me, if you were to describe it in the most simple terms. You know, I started off with the typical triangle uh, roof with the, the square bottom with the two windows and the door, and then I started to make it a three-day house because I thought that might go for longer, and then I failed. <laughs> okay. That, what you've described is what 99.99% of the uh, probably two or 300,000 people that I've talked to over the last decade, what they do. We, it, it's like this is what you draw when you draw a house. You draw a box with a triangle on top and all those shapes that you've drawn. And, and and I love how you've decided to go the extra mile and you do the 3D thing. So you draw the diagonal off the roof and off the, and then you, you draw an extra four lines and now it's a three-dimensional house. <laughs> we would, so, so here's the question that I want to ask you. Why are you still drawing the same house that you were drawing when you were six years old? The, the thing that you've practised, the, the first thing that comes to mind, isn't it? Sort of it's a, it's a precious situation, draw a house, go for it. And um, <laughs> it makes me think that I've just designed a renovation for the baby that was coming along. I quickly project managed this renovation, walls down, and I didn't once draw that house. I was drawing, you know, rooms by, by the millimetre, you know. Uh, where's the TV going to go? Where's the new kitchen going to go, the, the plumbing? So... That should be what a house is, isn't it? I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I reckon you're spot on. But but what's interesting is you've gone. You, you said that I put pressure on you. You oh sorry. You said that you felt pressure to draw a house. I didn't put any pressure on you at all. But you felt pressure nevertheless. In that pressured moment, you reverted to your most practiced habit. Even though for the last however long you've been designing this renovation, you've been drawing a house very differently. But in that moment, you haven't thought of that. You've gone back to that most practiced habit why else do you reckon let's let's just brainstorm this for a couple more seconds why else do you reckon you drew the same house you drew when you were six i know what it would look like it's easy you know it's a house and um i can finish it with you know the time that you give it maybe you know it's i can get a tick from that even though it's really bad <laughs> boom you know what's interesting about that response so so you said it's quick it's easy it's well practiced it i'm going to recognize it as a house and then you said something about you can get it done in the time frame I gave you. How much time did I give you? I, it was you didn't give me a time frame, did you? <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't. In fact, if I, I invited you to tell me about your house, and you said, "Well, I'm not quite finished," and then you described where you were up to, but at no point did you say, "Oh, I'd really love another three weeks to get this finished because I've got a great house in mind." You just said, "This is what I've drawn." There were no parameters. I just said, "Draw a house." Now let me switch the conversation to bring it back to your broader question about this idea of what teachers are doing in the classroom and the whole idea of, I guess, getting discipline right and getting their relationships right and getting autonomy right. In a discipline situation, what do most Australian parents, we'll start with parents and then we'll shift to teachers because there is a slight difference. What do most Australian parents think of when it comes to discipline or discipline strategies? I'm going to use an example I saw yesterday. I'm on I'm on a trip at the moment, so I can say this, and they, no one will have any idea who I'm talking about because I don't know them. But there was two adults sitting at a table with two toddlers and a baby, and they were sitting to to I assume the mothers of the children talking across from each other, having a, you know getting involved in their conversation. Probably haven't caught up for a while, and one child ran to the drink tap but started putting their mouth all over the tap, and the the first thing the that the mother, I assume, did 
was, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop it. I'm, we're going to leave. We're going to leave. And that didn't get up, didn't explain, didn't, you know, none of that. We're going to leave. And then it didn't work. She kept going. So the next thing, oh, your cookie. I've got your cookie. You're not going to have your cookie. And then it went to, I'll buy you an ice cream. So it jumped from a, something you were never going to do, a, sort of a punitive measure, we're going to leave, to you're not going to have the cookie, to a reward out of nowhere. And the kid gets, all right, I'll get an ice cream now. <laughs> so that is what I do notice from many people under pressure. And and that parent, I'm not judging them because maybe that's the first time they've seen this best friend for months or, you know, the first time they've been out of the house, whatever it might be. But I don't know. I heard judgment there, Matt. I reckon you have been a little bit judgy. <laughs> I was extremely saying. judgmental, but um, I tried to uh, have empathy for that. But um, yeah. when I was watching it, I was like, oh, my God. But I um, I could have stepped in perhaps. I don't know. Helped. But um, well, that, that, that's brave when you step in. I have done that. I might tell you a story or two about stepping in shortly. But so, so in terms of getting back to this thing, uh, standard discipline approach, uh, we've got threats, which usually escalate. We've got bribes, uh, which people usually see as um, a much more positive form of discipline, but they're two sides of the same coin. Um, what, what else? What, what are the other standard Australian parent discipline strategies that you see? What, what, what do your neighbours do? What, what's, the, what's the average parent in Australia do for discipline? Well, you've mentioned threat, reward, and um, well, is it go to your room? Is it, you know, taking something away, would you say? Okay, so there's, there's time out, there's withdrawal of privileges, and um, you, you're, you're too polite to say it, but around about 50% of Australians still smack their kids and uh, are, are willing to admit that, which I think is just a, a terrible indictment on our society. Uh, that there's, there's just, it's, I, I won't go on to that rant right now. Isn't it interesting, though, when you look at those discipline strategies, how easily we can draw a parallel between the way we discipline kids and the way we draw houses? So we go with what's quick, and what's easy, we go with what's practised, what's been taught to us. We fall back on something that's going to be representative of discipline to other people if they have to see us doing that discipline. Pretty much the entire list that you gave me for why you drew that house, we could use that same list for why we discipline the way we do. Now let's shift the conversation to teachers. What are teachers' standard discipline responses? Yeah, you made me think of I've got a particularly hard class at the moment and what happens once you've tried the, you know, let's go through the rules, let's go through the contract, you know, we try to do all of that, but then there's an assessment due, you know, something's coming up, there's a, you know, we're going to miss two classes. So it's, you know, separation, it's rows, it's get out, it's, you know, call the year level leader, it's seating plan, it's if you talk, you know, tick on the board and if you get three, it's detention and call your parents. It, it becomes really punitive and as a teacher, we feel absolutely disgusted by it, but we go, this is the only way we can do our job. So, or obviously there's other ways, but that's how we feel. So I get that. Yeah, well, well so, so under pressure, we revert to our most practiced habit, whether it's drawing a house or whether it's disciplining a class or disciplining a child. So let's, let's go back another step and talk about the definition of discipline. discipline. Let's get clear on that because we're talking about this idea of autonomy and discipline, therefore, has to come into the conversation. What do you think that most people would say discipline is? Like if, if I was to say to you, is it okay to discipline someone else's child? What, what, what is discipline? Yeah, you're making me think here. We, we, we often refer to discipline as punishment, I guess. 
um, whereas discipline should be, you know, the the master meditator up in the the Himalayas, isn't it? That the idea that you can discipline your mind and and body to to pay attention when it wants to be distracted, or however discipline that we we see is, I guess, regimented army style discipline for kids that don't want to be in the army. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you've given me three different forms of discipline now, and there are a number of definitions. If you look up a 2021 dictionary, the first first word that describes discipline is the word punishment. And then you've got the form of discipline that you described where you become a disciplined person by waking up every morning at five o'clock and you go for your run or your ride or your swim or you go to the gym uh, and you do your reading. And if you're a spiritual person, you do your devotion or your meditation or whatever it is. And you've got your daily discipline. So that's the second definition. Then the third definition, like you said, is where you say somebody needs discipline, that is they need to be put into line, which is kind of like a combination of the two. You're trying to get them to follow a daily discipline by being punitive. But if you look at the root of the word discipline, it comes from Latin disciples, which basically means one who follows. Uh, so, I mean, you can you can get caught up in the whole Christianity thing if you want. That's not where we're going. We're going to stick with the Latin. Uh, but there's a an obvious tie-in to uh, for those who have a faith background to a Christian tradition of a disciple being someone who follows a master. When we look towards the Latin, though, the the idea of disciples or I don't know how to speak Latin, so whatever it is, uh, it actually comes down to it's an it's analogous to teach, guide, instruct. When we discipline someone, we're supposed to teach, guide, and instruct. In other words, if if I was to condense that whole conversation into one simple sentence, it would be discipline means help. Because when I'm teaching or guiding or instructing you, I'm helping you, I'm socialising you, I'm lifting you to a new level, I'm helping, I'm helping you, full stop, end of story. Now, if you look up punishment, by the way, in the dictionary, you know what the definition of punishment is? And I'm going to paraphrase, but it basically says when you punish someone, you exact retribution. Mm. You make mm. them pay a price. They behave in a certain way, you don't like it, and there is a punishment affixed, that is, they have to pay a price. There is retribution demanded because they've done the wrong thing. So punishment really means hurt and discipline actually means help. What we do in classrooms and in homes, living rooms, kitchens, bedrooms, all around this country, day in and day out, is we confuse discipline and punishment. And instead of seeing children who are behaving in challenging ways as children who need us to come alongside with them, connect and help them, we see them as children who are obstacles and impediments to our otherwise well-ordered existence and we feel like we need to hurt them as a result. That's a long, long, long answer to your question, which revolved around the idea of autonomy. As humans, we have a basic and fundamental psychological need. In fact, we have three of them. We have a basic and fundamental psychological need for relatedness, competence and autonomy. When we meet those three needs, we boost well-being and we boost motivation. So let's have a think about it for a sec. You've got a kid in your living room or a kid in your classroom that's really struggling. They're getting it all wrong. And because you're feeling under pressure, you revert to your most practiced habit, which is one of those two long lists of punishments that we came up with. If you're a teacher, it's detention and separation and rows and a seating plan and uh, reminders of the classroom agreement that we all agreed on at the start of the year. And there's threats and there's escalation and parents get called. And if you're a parent, you're smacking or taking stuff off your kids or you're sticking them in time out. 
How old are you? 14, right, into your bedroom for 15 minutes to think about what you've done. Do you reckon any kid ever went to detention or to their bedroom for a time out and thought about what they did? Oh, they're just thinking about how much they hate the person that did that, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and they're and they're planning revenge on the person yeah. that put the that, that that they were involved in when they got in trouble and got sent there in the first place. Like it's so counterproductive. Uh, what happens though is if we've got these three needs of relatedness, competence, and autonomy, and we get punitive with someone, that is when we start to force them rather than giving them a sense of autonomy. Number one, we we rupture the relationship. So there's that basic psychological need undermined at the outset. Number two, we make them feel incompetent because they're having a challenging moment and we've just punished them for the way they're dealing with it because they're doing it in a lousy way. So we've undermined their competence need. And number three, we've undermined their autonomy by controlling them because punishment really is just about control. I've got the power. I can make you do stuff. So the, the the great challenge that we've got is when you've got a child who's being challenging in a classroom context or in your family, how do you meet those three basic psychological needs? How do you help them to feel like the relationship is intact? They're a competent and capable human who's just having a bad moment, but they can find the answers inside themselves and give them the freedom to figure it out. Like that, that's, that's the great challenge of parenting. That's the great challenge of being a classroom teacher. And so I I run through this with teachers and I run through this with parents for a living. This is what I do. And I talk to them about how they can do that. Teachers find it amazing. They they find it, it's like, wow, that actually never thought of that before. And parents, they um, struggle because we just want to get the kids to do as they're told because we want everything to work the way it's supposed to. And, And the way we do it is real simple, believe it or not. But we've got to get control of ourselves first. The way we get control of our, you know what happens is, so there's a psychological term called fusion, fusion. And fusion happens when, uh, so you know when you you see a child doing something that's really challenging and you think, oh, that kid's just a nightmare. And then your stress starts to rise and your emotions go up and you think, fair dinkum, I've had enough of this kid. I'm going to make them pay a price this time. I'm going to punish them. They're going to learn their lesson. By the way, punishment's a lousy teacher, but that's what we start to think. And we have these big emotions and they, they fuse with these really negative, nasty, punitive thoughts. We get this fusion and we become our thoughts and our feelings. We take our thoughts as facts. Because I'm seeing that kid as a challenging kid, they are a challenging kid. And that's a lie because I can tell you that that same kid that you're thinking is just a dead set fanning pain in the backside, there are times when that child is the sweetest, kindest, most compassionate, beautiful kid. And there is somebody hopefully in the world that sees them that way, but right now it's not you. But as a parent or as a teacher, you've got these goals and these values. You want to be compassionate. You want to be kind. You want to be helpful. You want to lift people. You you got into being a parent or being a teacher because you wanted to be a positive influence in the lives of kids. <laughs> That's what you're doing. And yet in the moment, you're thinking, yeah, but not this kid. <laughs> I'm not going to help this one. I'm going to make them pay a price because they're wrecking my life. And, and we become fused with these toxic thoughts and feelings. Psychologists say what we want to do is become defused. We call it defusion. We're trying to defuse ourselves from these toxic thoughts and feelings. The first thing we've got to do is become mindful of it, like literally go, ah, I'm having really toxic thoughts about my child or about my student right now. Just doing that does something magical in our mind. It brings with it this kind of acceptance 
And like by naming what you're feeling, by saying, this is what I'm feeling right now, you suddenly accept that you're feeling it, which means that you don't have to keep fighting against it and it lowers the pressure. It actually creates what psychologists call psychological distance. And that psychological distance allows you to sort of step back from the scenario that you're in and think about it a little bit differently. In that moment, if you can think, so what kind of a parent do I really want to be? What kind of a teacher do I really want to be? I do a little activity. I've got a couple of different psychological distancing strategies. Once I say to myself, Justin, you're really angry at your kids right now. You're really mad with your teenage daughter. You feel like you want to hurt her. You're so cranky. Whether it's by taking something off her or sometimes physically, there's a visceral, I want to, I want to whack them. I'm so mad, uh, which, which obviously I don't. But, but, but I feel like that sometimes. I know I'm the expert. I know I've written the books, but I still feel like that. What happens is I defuse by saying, Justin, you're starting to feel like you're out of control. And if I can say that to myself, that's kind of that reality check that creates the psychological distance. And then I've got a couple of different strategies that I can employ. The first one I call channeling my inner mental mentor. So I think, who do I know that's really good at dealing with these situations? Who's always patient? Who's always calm? Who's always compassionate? Who knows how to help their kids rather than hurt them? I wonder if I can channel my inner mental mentor. And there just happens to be a guy that I really look up to who I think is a phenomenal father. And so I try to be him. I don't try to do what he would do because then I've got to remember all the steps. It's too hard. I just try to act like he does. And that changes who I am because I've accepted what I'm feeling. I've named it. I've said it out loud. Sometimes I'll even say it to my child. And then I say, but I'm going to try and be like Wally. Wally is my inner mental mentor and he's such a good man. Sometimes that doesn't work or sometimes I can't get there. And so I just imagine that I've got an audience because have you ever noticed that parents act really differently when there's people watching them parent their kids? <laughs> like yeah, we're always on our best behavior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the second psychological distancing strategy. If you, can, if you can channel your inner mental mentor or if you can imagine you've got an audience, it does amazing things. My favorite one, though, is to think to myself, in 20 years' time or in 10 years' time, I'm going to be sitting at the dining table with this child. What if this incident comes up in conversation? Like what if we start talking about what happened that day when dad lost the plot because I did that thing? Do I want her to say, oh, dad, I remember that day. That was the day that you put that hole in the wall. That was the day that you used language I've never heard you use before. That was the day when you hit me and I became scared of you. Or do I want her to say, dad, I remember when I was 16 and I really upset you that day. And you were, you were so good to me. I did not deserve that. I was horrible. I was bratty. I was inappropriate. I was absolutely appalling. And you were patient with me. You were good to me. You treated me better than I deserved. That's, that's what I want. And in that moment, if I can diffuse from my big thoughts and my big feelings about what a pain in the bum this kid is, sorry, I'm getting all emotional about it because I'm tapping into my values, right? I'm tapping into the stuff that matters most to me. If, 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 if I can defuse, if I can mindfully accept where I'm at, label it, and then step back and imagine my 25 or 35-year-old daughter, probably with kids of her own, sitting at the dining table and talking to me about how I nailed it that day when, I, when she didn't deserve it, I'm going to be a better dad mm. and, and, and I'm going to be a better classroom teacher if that's what I do. I'm going to remember that the 10-year um, the, the reunion is going to happen 
And I want to be the teacher that those kids flock to because I was patient and I was good and I was tender and I still taught them and we still had a great class. That's what I think the gold is when it comes to getting this right. So that's, um, that, that's how you get yourself under control. Then what do you do with the kids? Well, that's really simple. Three E's of effective discipline. First of all, you explore what's going on for them. You say, hey, you seem to be having a really tough time. You seem to be really struggling. Tell me what's going on. And then you listen really closely with no agenda. Once you've listened, you say, I see. So um, I, I just had a conversation shortly before you and I had this conversation. I was talking to a woman who had a, um, a massive blow-up with her husband this morning. Uh, she's heading into the city. She lives three hours out of the city, but she's heading into the city today with her husband to find out if she's got ovarian cancer. They're under a bit of pressure. But their 14-year-old son had a really bad morning. And while mum took daughter to school, dad had a blow up with son. Then dad walks out to the garage as she drives, as mum drives back in and says, you deal with him. I've had enough of him. I've just had a blow up with him. I'm sick of it all. And mum says, oh, why don't you just, and she swears at him and tells him to get over himself. And then she goes up and deals with the son who's crying. And now the whole family's in commotion. And, and I just thought, imagine if we could all just be a little bit more tender and, and explore what's going on. Like say to the 14 year old, you're really worried, aren't you? Cause mum's going to go and get this scan today. Or say to the husband, this is not a good morning for any of us, is it? We're all stressed. We're all falling apart. Like if we can just explore people's worlds and understand what's going on for them, you might find that that kid in your class, his parents are going through a separation or a, 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 a trigger warning. I'm, I'm being really real here. There's some serious stuff that happens in people's homes and families. Maybe last night dad hit mum again or maybe last night big brother slammed the door so hard that it fell off the hinges. Or maybe last weekend, this girl was at a sleepover party and there was an uncle or a big brother who was visiting and took advantage of the fact that there was a nine-year-old girl who didn't know what boundaries were and, and she's been hurt. Like, we don't, we, we don't know what's going on. And as parents and teachers, we just get angry. We say, stop it, cut it out, I'm going to make you pay this price. And, and kids are hurting. Now, it might not be that traumatic. Maybe they're not going through anything at all like that. Maybe they're just having a crappy day because they didn't sleep well last night or maybe they've got they've got sore legs and they can't walk today because that's what happens, right? On cold mornings, no one wants to get up and actually get out of bed and walk to the kitchen. Um, but maybe we could just explore their world a little more. And then we the second E is we explain. We say, all right, well, this is the situation we're in. This is the expectation that I have. Is that a reasonable expectation? All right, so here's where you are. Here's where I am. The third E is empower. What do you reckon we should do about it? See, when we explore, explain, and empower, number one, we keep the relationship strong. That's the relatedness need met. Number two, we provide autonomy because we say, what do you think? How do you reckon we should solve this? And number three, we support competence because we're essentially saying, I believe you can figure this out. I could keep going, but I reckon that's that's kind of the, I don't know, that's, that's the short 40-minute answer to your question. <laughs> Sorry. No, Justin, thank you. Thank you for sharing so much about yourself too and and getting real, you know. It really it's um it's refreshing to hear real answers and not just, you know, uh, a few words just to make people listen, but to to see you get emotional if I could get emotional, I would have. <laughs> I say that a lot. I really, you know, I'm, I'm a typical um, man that needs to learn how to be more vulnerable myself. And I, I really appreciate you being vulnerable. 
I know we're running out of time. We could speak all day and um, I'd love to have you on one day in the future again. But my final question that I ask all my guests is about the name of the podcast, which is Moments of Clarity. Have you had a moment of clarity about the world, this failed meritocracy, this inequitable society, this place where really messed up things are happening to people, really messed up things as you started to allude to and talk about? And we're trying to live our life and we understand the world a little bit. We try to think about what's right and how to do it. And then we come across this stuff that just seems just so much. Have you had a moment of clarity that you can share with us where you've been able to simplify life just that little bit to be able to make a difference to people, to empower people, to to really live your life in, I guess, right relationship with your values and yourself and in your case with God and and other people might have that with whatever, you know, gets them going. Can you share a moment of clarity with us today? So uh, a, a thought that will take me to that moment of clarity, a few years ago or many years ago, gosh, what is it, 2021? Uh, yeah, so let's go back to like 1994, 1995. I uh, read the book uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And in that book he talks about circles of influence and circles of concern. Our circle of influence is usually a lot smaller than our circle of concern. You watch the news at night or you well, you don't need to wait till nighttime anymore. You, you open up your news app and the circle of concern booms loud and you, you see all the things that we should be worried about. There's a bajillion people dealing with COVID in the US and in South America and in India and borders are closed and businesses are closing and there's all of this stuff going on that's in our circle of concern, but we can't do anything about it. And when we get caught up in it, it, it kind of wrecks our lives because you can't do anything, but it still gets you down. Um, then there's a circle of influence. That's where you look at, well, what can I do right here, right now? And the reality is for most of us, our circle of influence is pretty small. But my moment of clarity came a couple of years ago. And what it's done is it's helped me to enlarge my circle of influence. The moment of clarity occurred when Oh, gosh, I'm just thinking about, about three other moments of clarity that, that all preceded this one. But I'm going to just share this one because I think that it's the most powerful message that I can share right now. I was writing a book about teenage girls. The book's called Misconnection, Why Your Teenage Daughter Hates You, Expects the World Needs to Talk. You'll probably need that one, Matt, in about 10 years from now. <laughs> and and um, the, as I wrote the book, I surveyed a whole lot of teenage girls. I interviewed them. I did focus groups with them. I really spent some time getting to understand a teenage girl because, number one, I've never been a girl, and, number two, it's a long time since I've been a teenager. And, um, Matt, I, I kept on writing about these teenage girls and using the same word again and again and again, compassion. These girls need our compassion. And it was really interesting to me because I, I love the word and I've used it a lot before, but I, I've never used it quite so much as I was in this context. And so I decided to look it up. As you've probably gathered, I really love learning about words and where they come from. I'm big in, into etymology of words. And compassion is comprised of two words, once again, from the Latin. Com, well, actually, this is not the Latin. I don't know what the Latin is because I don't speak it. But com and passion are the two words that we break it down to in English. Com means together. It means with others. So we have uh, communities. We communicate. We're part of a company. We engage in combat. Com is with others. Passion Whenever I think about passion, I just think of Tony Robbins doing his whole, um, you know, you can do it, you can do it, you're amazing, you can change the world kind of passion sort of thing. Um, that's not what it means from the original Latin root. 
The word passion actually means suffering, to suffer. So while I'm writing this book about teenage girls and saying that our teenage girls need our compassion, I suddenly realise that what I'm really saying is our teenage girls need us to suffer with them. And that may be one of the most profound things that I have ever discovered. Some people are probably listening to and going, yeah, whatever. But for me, it changed everything. I had a teenage girl that I was struggling with at the time. Uh, and, and what I realised was that she was struggling too. In fact, in the front of the book, Matt, I've got a quote. The quote's from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. This is the play that everyone's been going to see and talking about for a few years now. And Draco, Draco Malfoy says this. He says, people say parenting is the hardest job. It's not. Growing up is. And I just thought to myself, that's, that's compassion. It's looking at our children or for teachers, looking at our students and seeing that their challenging behaviour is coming from the fact that they're feeling challenged, that they've got unmet needs, that they're having a hard time. And they don't need us to be punitive. They don't need us to be angry. They don't need us to go off our brains at them or to make them sit in on detention or punish them. They need compassion. They need us to see them in their suffering and they need us to come alongside them in that suffering and help them. Amazing. Thank you, Justin. I I appreciate your time and, and everything that you've done in your life to get to, to where you are today and to, to be the help that you are. Thank you so much. Awesome. Nice to be with you. Take care. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.